of South Australia podcast, where we bring you conversations in all things biology in our state. I'm your host, Bradley Bianco. Today's guest is Dr. Raphael Eisenhofer. Dr. Raphael is a postdoctoral researcher at the Australian Centre for Ancient DNA here at the University of Adelaide. Dr. Raphael Eisenhofer, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do? Yeah, so I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Adelaide, and my background is microbiology, and I study microbial ecology. So essentially kind of studying microbial communities as a whole, not just an individual bacterium or microbe. It's like the whole composition yeah. of microbes in exactly. the environment. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So I've come across, across this term a bunch, mm. the microbiome. Yeah. I was wondering, could you tell us how you ended up studying microbiology? What got you interested in it and what is it that you work on now? Yeah, sure. And what is the microbiome? Yeah. Okay, so yes, there's um, terminology-wise, it's, you know, there's a few terms. There's the microbiota, there's the microbiome. You may have heard of the microflora. So the microflora is a very kind of old-school term. I guess the issue with this term is that they're it's not, not literal. parts. Yeah. yeah, it's not literal. Um, the term that's been used quite a lot is the microbiota, and that is kind of defined as the microbes present in a given environment. The microbiome, on the other hand, is all-encompassing. So it's the microbiomes present in an environment, the environmental conditions, and the environment itself. So an example would be like um, the human gut microbiome. So that's the, the microbes that live in that gut, uh, the gut the conditions in there, uh, the host, etc. So right. it's more of a holistic, I guess. So does the microbiome include the microorganisms on your skin and your gut and your nasal cavity? Yeah. Is it just all of it? Well, so yeah, I mean, you could say, I guess, the human microbiome, which right. would be all-encompassing, but in reality, we like to study them in discrete units because mm -hmm. we know that the different uh, body sites are quite different and distinct, you know? If you think of it like different ecosystems on the planet, you have, you know, say, like a savanna yep. has a different uh, ecosystem, different fauna that live on it versus, say, like a, a jungle. Right. So it's, it's very much like that. We're, yeah. we're kind of like a... A planet in ourselves, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Or a microcosm. Microcosms, yeah. exactly. That's really cool. Yeah. All right, there's another term that I'd love you to clarify for me. I've come across it a couple of times and never really taken the time to look into it. That is holobiont. Holobiont. Yeah, what is a holobiont? <laughs> so, yeah, the, the holobiont is kind of, I guess, the term that people have come up with for the whole unit. So the microbes and the host as a kind of evolutionary unit, so ah, to speak. Like so, a whole system. Yeah, like a whole system. So rather than being in isolation... So we, you know, obviously know evolution works on the host, right, on, on our genes and the epigenome, mm -hmm. etc. Um, but people are also recently been thinking, well, you know, evolution is also working on the microbes that that um, host carries with them, and that can have, you know, important implications for the ecology and, and fitness of the host. So, so it's, it's more of an all-encompassing term. Right. Okay. That's that's perfect. It leads us into what exactly does the microbe? How how does it interact with the fitness of an organism? What what role does it have? <sighs> yeah. So this has been. There's a lot, I guess. So this this um this has been under increasing scrutiny in the past, I guess, twenty years, um, mm -hmm. and this has all been due to um, advances in technology. So you may have heard of next generation sequencing, ability to sequence DNA really rapidly. This has basically opened the door to be able to study these microbes because prior to this, we'd had to try and grow them on a plate, like culture um, them, culture them essentially, and individually. Or well, this is the thing. It's it's hard to uh, culture things more uh, a lot of things at once, mm -hmm. um, and so that led to what's called the great plate count anomaly, which is like you can only culture, you know, 
1% roughly of, of all microbes. Crazy. Because they're quite fastidious in what they want, right? And also if, if microbes have evolved to live in a community, if you yeah. only have one member, they can't sometimes live with it without each other. So we're probably missing a whole bunch from those old methods. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to belittle the, the old methods because like that was really the... the the background yeah, the foundation. of the foundation of this research because that let us you know say this sequence belongs to this particular microbe there's now new methods that let you do this without culturing which is really where the, the field is taken is this is this where metagenomics comes in yes could you could you explain yeah. metagenomics so me? metagenomics say I, I take a um a skin sample from from you and oh, i right. extract the dna <laughs> i extract the dna the metagenome is essentially all the dna that i can i can sequence including so this, my own including yours so it's basically everything that i can get the sequencer can, can spit out. So what are some of the, other than um, next generation, you mentioned next generation yeah. sequencing and metagenomics, so if you wanted to take a, a sample of the community of an animal's mm. feces, yep. <laughs> yeah. um, how would you do it? What, what lab techniques are you using? Yeah, so I mean, I guess starting from the sampling, so obviously we, you want to take feces to, as a proxy for the gut, that's been kind of shown to be a good proxy for the gut, because obviously the gut as itself, it's, it's quite a, can be very long in certain animals, and we know there's certain differences based on the biogeography of the gut itself, but feces overall is a pretty good proxy for the gut as a whole. Um, so typically what you want to do is collect fresh feces, as fresh as you can, because as you can imagine, if the animal drops it, um, the longer you leave it outside of the host, the microbes are still living and growing, mm. and the longer they're left outside, the less representative they are of the actual host Because they're being colonized by other things. So they could be colonized by things in the environment, but yeah. also just, you know, the microbes within that will change, you know, like there's still nutrients in the feces, yeah. and that community composition will change. You'll get blooming of certain microbes that can mask biological right. signal in the host. Um, so we, we try to collect as fresh as we can um, and then kind of fix that material. So you can use freezing as kind of the best, the gold standard way of doing it, but obviously freezing is quite hard to do, especially if you're out in the field. Right. So we use ethanol, so 95% ethanol, essentially just put the feces in the tube, shake it up, that ethanol acts to kill the microbes but preserve the DNA, mm. and then you kind of fix that community composition in time. Mm-hmm. Um, once you do that, we, we extract the DNA, so we use kits, to basically extract DNA, so a mixture of enzymatic lysis and also bead beating, so these tiny little beads. Yep. You basically put the feces in a tube with beads and shake it really hard, and that kind of lyses the cells. Yeah, burst them. Burst them, essentially, yep. yeah. Uh, and then using molecular biology to isolate the DNA and separate all the other stuff that you don't need, because the DNA is only a small fraction of yep. the material in there. So you um, end up with a bunch of DNA sequences. Yep. How do you tell that this sequence is from mm. this yeast and this sequence is from this yeah. bacterium? How does that work? So there's a few ways of doing that. So um, a very common method and probably the most widely used method is to look at just a specific part of the bacterial genome or microbial genome, which like is a the, barcode. A barcode, essentially. Yeah. You may have heard of the barcode of life project, you know, people looking at the mitochondria. Oh, so people are interested, you know, plants and, and eukaryotes, they study like this barcode, which is the CO1 gene on the mitochondria, which is conserved. It's a really such a conserved gene, right, that all animals have it. Yeah. So you can use that. Um, it has phylogenetic information inside there as well, so you'd be able, you'd be able to tell which belongs to which. Yeah, right. Um, so so these are ever so slightly. Yeah, and I mean these techniques aren't perfect, right? Because the resolution to, to distinguish things can sometimes not be sufficient if you're looking at just one part of the genome. Right. But so you could say this belongs to this genus, but we can't tell yeah, what species. That, that's in many cases right. what you can do with right. these Sunday's methods. So. For the bacteria, there's um, this locus called, or this particular gene called the 16S ribosomal RNA gene, and that forms part of the ribosome, which is that really important machinery that um, synthesizes proteins. So again, it's so important that all bacteria have it. Everything's got it. So uh, targeting that gene, um, you can basically use that as a barcode to yeah. distinguish things. So that's that's the kind of really widely used method. 
Although the issue with that right is that, that that can tell you roughly where it sits, which is good, but it doesn't necessarily tell you what it does. You know, right. what 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 genes does this microbe have, and what could that be doing for the host? Right. You know, what could that be doing in that environment? Okay, I think we actually got a little bit derailed from my original yeah. question about we, <laughs> what exactly the microbiome. What are the what is the microbial community doing to the animal? Is, yeah. Obviously, it's involved in fitness. Yes. Um, so. Yeah, so, I mean, as you can imagine, you know, we're covered in microbes. There's an enormous, enormous interface between us and the microbial world. We know that the microbes can be evolved in how we access food. So we know that hosts, enzymes and proteins that we produce, we can't break down a lot of fiber and stuff, for example. That's a really good example, fiber. Yeah, like uh, ungulates and cellulates. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's a really good example, right? You have the evolution of these, in many cases, foregut fermentation, you know, in cows. Yeah. Which has also been conventionally evolved in macropods. So but it's hind gut fermentation, right? Yeah, there's also hind gut fermentation as well. So there's two strategies, which is really interesting. In yeah, that delivery. is. But the foregut fermentation is like essentially this chamber, which has all these microbes uh, with the right conditions for them to break down, you know, cellulose and various other fiber, fibrous compounds. So it's not actually the animal's enzymes that are digesting it; it's the bacteria it hosts. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Because right. it turns out the microbes, you know, well, they've been around the longest on our planet. They, they're pretty handy when it comes to getting nutrients. You know, they've been at it a long time, yeah, cool. <laughs> as opposed to us animals. So how, I'm, I'm obviously a conservationist, mm-hmm. and that's what I study. So I'm always curious to know how someone's field of research ties into conservation. Mm-hmm. How can we use our growing understanding of the microbiome to inform conservation strategies? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, so I guess I might provide a bit of background as well. So... I mean, there's a really good quote I love from Theodore Dobzhansky, who was a fly geneticist, a really popular evolutionary biologist. Everyone's heard of him. And he says, you know, the famous quote, you know, like, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. And so I think looking back, right, microbes have been on this planet. They were the first life to evolve. Animals evolved, you know, 500 million years ago, roughly. And they evolved in a, in a microbial world. So we've always had, our ancestors have always had to interact with microbes mm. in, to some degree. Um, that's the kind of context there. Moving forward now to you know human health, a lot of the research for the microbiome has been done in humans, right? Because we obviously you know, want to cure diseases. It's we <laughs> we like to do that kind of stuff. So essentially, what we found in the human microbiome, this we carry more cells, microbial cells, than human cells. Way it's, more, right? Yeah, it's like one point three times more, I think, roughly, yeah. depending on when you last went to the bathroom, because that can that's a, good, <laughs> a large source. <laughs> um, you know, there's you know thousands of species. They weigh about two hundred grams if you to click them up and weigh them. So that's about weight of a potato and they also carry enormously more genes than our human genome so we know the human genome has about twenty thousand genes right whereas the microbial genes from the human microbiome are about 100 times that so there's an enormous potential there for for, uh, important genes and functions for the host so what what the modern human microbiome literature has has shown is that microbiomes are linked to a number of diseases and so the actual intricacies of how what these links are is very well, still remains to be understood because it's a very mm. complex ecosystem, as you can imagine, right? You've got you know potentially hundreds of uh, microbial species interacting with the host and the host's immune system, and interacting with each other too, and so. interacting with each other exactly. But we know that they are linked to the immune system development. So from an early age, these microbes can train, help train your immune system, figure out what's friend and foe. They're linked to you know how we metabolize our food. People have found links to even things like drug metabolism. So yeah, based on the microbes, really, really recent work. Yeah, right? really recent stuff. So based on what type of microbes you have in your gut, that can influence the how efficacy yeah, of a of a drug. So wild, crazy, right? Who yeah. would have thought that? Like you know, clinical trials thinking, oh, why isn't this working? Well, maybe it's something to do with the, the gut microbiome. The gut microbiome. 
There's also some more recent links to the brain as well. So, because we know the gut, right? It's it's probably the largest surface area that we have between us and microbes. It's like 30 to 40 square meters. It's a mm. huge surface area. Yeah, I never think about that. Um, yeah. And there's also, uh, I think roughly 60% of the immune system is in the gut interface. And also 90% of the serotonin, this neurotransmitter. Is yeah, you have like a bunch of neurons in your gut, right? Yeah, so that's, that's kind of, uh, this has led people to think, well, is there a gut-brain axis, right? Are microbes somehow communicating with our gut, which is communicating with our brain? Um, and that's where it's going to get very interesting. What's the, the answer to that question? Well, I mean, I, I would say it's probably too early. I mean, there's some compelling experiments with mice to show that there are definitely some uh, implications. But again, such complex systems, right? Humans, like the, the more we learn about what well, other animals in general, the more we learn about biology, the more we realize we don't know a lot. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So when it comes to applying this growing body of knowledge mm-hmm. to the preservation of a, an animal species. Yeah. How can we use that kind yeah. of information? So I guess I guess this is this is the goal of what my research wants to do. I really want to try and uh, create good outcomes for endangered species, especially our mammals in Australia, which you know we're leading the world in mammal extinctions. Oh yeah, which is nothing to be proud of. No. <laughs> um, but essentially, it's just applying this concept. You know, we, we ha- now have a compelling body of evidence from humans and other animals that the microbes are really important for, for host functions, physiology, etc. But we haven't really taken this into account for conservation, mm-hmm. right? We, we know that genetic diversity in the conservation context is really important, you know? Yeah. Behavioral adaptation, you know, to adapt to captivity. I think there's a really cool experiment with quolls that I think it was like 12 weeks um, they became naive to predators or something like that. Wow. So there's all these factors, right, um, involved, but the microbiome hasn't really been considered yet. And we know there's actually some quite a lot of evidence now, like over a dozen species of mammals, showing that the microbes in captivity of an animal uh, are different to the microbes in the wild. Yeah, Talia so, Perry, our previous guest, yeah. was talking about this very thing. Yeah, and so the big question is like, well, why is that? You know, I mean, there's obviously a lot of fa- factors that can be involved. The diet and and captivity can typically be different to what's in the wild. Less environmental exposure to particular microbes, even potentially loss of microbes. Right, if, if microbes aren't being used in that kind of gut context, um, they can kind of become extinct because like use it or lose it kind of deal. Yeah, exactly. So and that could potentially be compounded over multiple generations, right? Kind of like a genetic bottleneck, mm. um, but for the microbes themselves. So the idea, I guess the ultimate goal would be to understand more about how microbes influence the host in, in terms of endangered species, and then figure out if we could manipulate their microbiomes to help improve their translocation yeah. uh, outcomes. You know, Developing a cocktail. Um, you may have heard of a fecal transplant. Yeah, that, that's yeah. one method you could do, right? So. I like the concept of a microbial cocktail. Yeah, that's another one, right? Probiotics. I mean, there was a cool study where they just introducing a couple of species was enough to kind of improve a certain function, so degrading tannins. You know? Yeah. So that's that's. Do you um, know about the research with the whooping crane in North America? Oh, I think I'm not really. So I wish I had read more about this now, but essentially they're having really low success mm. with their their breeding whooping cranes in captivity. Mm. And when they go to reintroduce them to the wild, they're finding that they don't survive. And for a long time, they haven't really understood why. (laughs) And they think it has something to do with the microbiome. (laughs) And I really wish I had read more about this now. (laughs) They were inoculating some part of their growth with a probiotic. Mm. And that was increasing their success. Interesting. That's all I know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, there's yeah, there's so much out there, and it's it's a really exciting area. Do you, are you aware of um, studies that are currently underway into maybe uh, translocation, how the microbiome interplays? Well, with that? yeah, I mean, as far as I'm aware, I don't uh, know a lot. And there's some work in koalas. Actually, some people from University of Queensland. We're doing some transplants, I believe, with koalas. 
even from different populations, right? Because I guess one of the key considerations is like, what is a wild microbiome right, mm. for an animal? Because the distribution of an animal could be quite diverse. Yeah. We know there's genetic substructure based on the distribution, right? If, if animals aren't mixing with each other for a lot, yeah. a long time, then they can be quite distinct. Also, their microbiomes can be quite distinct as well. In terms of what is a wild microbiome, I think we have to be really um, specific as well. Like we have to look at distribution. Yeah. It's kind of provenance. Provenance, exactly. Yeah. Um, and different environments will have different pressures, you know, different plants that have different compounds that can be broken down, etc. Mm -hmm. So it might not be, be as easy to say, I've got a wild microbiome for this, this quoll, and that will be good for all the quolls. Yeah. Um, so we need, really need to be thinking about this when we're doing a translocation, like uh, one of our previous guests, Grace Hodder, she's working oh, on yeah. the um, rewilding the York Peninsula. Yeah. And yeah. one of the things they're doing is they're breeding or taking animals from all over Australia yeah. to reintroduce them into an area where they've been extinct for mm. decades. So I'm, I'm really curious as to what effect. Yeah, the no, I'm, I'm getting in touch with them actually to see if we can do some kind of microbiome monitoring as well, right? So it'd be oh, really cool. cool to do that experiment, like measure the microbiomes before release, um, and then also you know through time after they've been released to see how they adapting, how their microbiome's adapting to that change in environment, and yeah. what's the baseline? Because that'd be really important, right? Like, is it as easy as just like putting a captive animal into the wild and then its microbiome will get, get there? But I would be more inclined to believe that that's probably not the case. I mean, we know there's actually some co-evolution between microbes and the hosts. You know, there's some compelling evidence from uh, the great apes to suggest that you know even throughout great ape evolution, there's certain bacteria that have co-evolved alongside them. Those, right. those different kind of like in symbiosis. Exactly in symbiosis, right? I think the real key area now is to figure out like what proportion of microbes in a microbiome is this kind of really deep-rooted symbiosis. And they could be manipulating really subtle things like subtle physiological responses like immunity, right? Those, those are all kind of subtle factors um, from the symbiosis. And the more environmental, environmentally adaptive microbiome. So there might be two fractions, right? Mm. One that's really deep-seated and important for um, physiological function. Right. The other that's more like adaptive in that particular environment. Yeah, so one is like uh, an essential to the function and the other one is flexible to where yeah. the organism exists. Exactly. Um, and also figuring out, you know, like, well how are these relationships between microbes and hosts formed? Like, how long does it take, for example? I mean, is it just like picking some random ones up from the wild and that works? Or is it does it take quite a while, you know? There's evidence, you know, from looking at herbivores that break down plants that they have quite complex guilds, so to speak, of microbes that work together to break down these plants. So you can imagine if you lose that, it's a lot harder to kind of bring those connections back together. So you might have 95% of the guild, but that 5% that's missing destroys the function of the guild as a whole. Potentially. Potentially. Yeah. So this is a work to be done still. Yeah, yeah. Right. What are some of the research areas that particularly interest you? You mentioned the rewilding the York. What else have you got in mind? Yeah, so I mean, well, I think what I really want to do is we really need to document some wild microbiomes of uh, Australian mammal fauna. Um, that's really important for the conservation aspect, right? During that baseline information for that. But there's also some really interesting kind of biological questions we can ask with that as well, right? Like, how have microbes co-evolved with native mammals? The great uh, thing we can leverage for that is that we know the phylogeny, right? The evolutionary history of our Australian mammals quite well. They were kind of, you know, there's a common ancestor roughly 60 million years ago, um, which diversified into all the amazing forms that we have now today. Cool. And so you can kind of leverage that information to place that microbiome component onto that and see, okay, this, these two species share a common ancestor this long ago, we see microbes that are still present between mm. some of them or you know there's multiple you know for example times where animals have gone to uh, they've changed their lifestyle or you know 
ecological. Like become arboreal. Yeah. Yeah. Like or herbivorous, go yeah. herbivorous to carnivory, etc. So there's a, a number of examples we can do that to also study more about microbiome evolution in general. And surely that must change drastically if you change, you know, go from eating plants to eating meat. Yeah. That must. No, exactly. Yeah. Can can microbial information be used in phylogenetics? Like, can we say? you know, this group, is it kind of like genes is what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So, I mean, it's obviously a bit harder with microbes. Um, you may have heard of horizontal gene transfer. Yeah, I was actually going to so, ask you about this. Yeah. So this is the idea that, you know, like, you know, we're used to our genes being vertically transmitted, right? Um, our parents, you know, like reproduce, offspring is born, there's vertical transmission off to the next generation. But with microbes, that can be the case. They split, right, into daughter cells, mm -hmm. and that's pretty much directly copying everything. But they can also, also share genes between their conspecifics or even other species so and this is horizontal gene transfer. yeah and that's been in the context of medicine that's you know antibiotic resistance yeah the sharing of these really important genes for the fitness of the bacterium um, that can really mess up uh, antibiotic resistance so that's that idea but yes in, in terms of phylogenetics you can use it um, assuming you're sure that there's not been any evidence of horizontal gene transfer oh cool yeah so we hear so much about the biodiversity crisis and mm -hmm. Well, actually, we're probably going here as much as we should, <laughs> to be fair. But, you know, we're losing species. Mm. And you mentioned Australia has lost, like, some ridiculous percentage mm. of our mainland, mainland fauna. Mm. And plants, obviously, too. But I definitely don't hear as much about how microbial species are declining. Mm. Are they declining? And how do anthropogenic drivers influence their diversity? Yeah, that's a, that's a hard question. <laughs> I guess the thing is we don't have that data yet. I mean, it's so we don't even know if micro microbial communities are declining or how their populations. Well, I guess are it's hard to measure that. You know, like right. do you do it just based off the raw abundance of microbes, or is it just the changes in communities? And then mm. you need those experiments where you measure that same area multiple times. And you know, time series is still something that is coming into the microbiome field. We're currently, you know, taking snapshots of microbial communities, right? Whereas we know their interactions take place through time. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, for sure, I mean, we know that things like, you know, pollution can reduce microbial diversity, right? We, we've, we've demonstrated that. I, I, I don't know any studies myself, but I mean, I'm pretty sure it has been done. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we were having some impact on the global microbial diversity. And there was actually a recent paper this year, it was like a kind of consensus statement from a bunch of microbiologists saying that microbes should be considered in a um, global climate change context because they play enormous roles for, the, for our biosphere, right? I think 90% of the ocean biomass is microbial. Wow, so, that's yeah. nuts. <laughs> Something like 10 to the 29 cells. So 10 oh. with 29 zeros cells. Wow. So, you know, it's, and if you think about it, right, this, this planet before animals came around, there was microbes there. And that they've, they're constantly influencing the biosphere. The availability of nitrogen, mm -hmm. carbon fixation, oxygen production, etc. these really macro scale effects. Have you solely worked on the microbiome as it relates to fauna? Have you done any work on flora? No, so my background is actually ancient DNA. All so right. studying uh, ancient microbes preserved on the teeth of humans. So cool. On dental tartar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this, um, this kind of research field is really new. It's only been really 2013, I think, was when the first paper was published. Wow, so super new. Super new. Um, and so, I'm not, so ancient DNA is essentially DNA from dead organisms that haven't been intentionally preserved. So these can be like bones from caves, right, from, from dead animals or humans. But we've always been lacking in a microbial, I guess, record 
ancient record, mm-hmm. right? Because as you can imagine, microbes don't have bones. So when they die, they don't leave anything behind, right? <laughs> the, the DNA gets qu- quickly degraded. Yeah. But it turns out the microbes that live on the teeth of animals and humans in particular, uh, we have this dental tartar, right, on our teeth. And our dentist typically removes it for us. Yeah. But it's what it actually is, it's this kind of biofilm on our teeth called plaque, mm-hmm. um, which periodically hardens and forms this uh, calcium like phosphate like matrix. matrix, essentially. Yeah, and it right. locks the cells in their DNA in it. And it turns out it preserves the DNA extraordinarily well. So we can go to a, like a museum or a, a cave and, and scrape the, the tartar off the teeth of a person living hundreds or thousands of years ago. Like a and forensic then, dentist. Exactly. Um, <laughs> cleaning their teeth for them um, and then figure out what microbes were there and, and how they've been changing through time. Cool. Which is, which is kind of the, the work that my um, previous supervisor, Laura Warwick, has been leading. Which is so really cool. can we tell what an organism was eating or what can we infer from that kind of Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually quite a complex, a hard sample type, right? As you can imagine, dental tartar is like the buildup of a person's whole lifetime, right? Yeah. It's not just like a snapshot at a particular moment. Yeah. It's the accumulation, right? So it could represent all the changes that occurred in that person's lifetime. Wow. Um, I was interested more in it from a phylogenetic perspective. So this comes back to your question before, right? Um, if we know that some of these microbes have... The ability to be transmitted vertically, um, they show strong, strong degrees of vertical transmission. We could use that as a marker for human movements, right? mm. uh, with, the, with the benefit being that microbes, because they're uh, reproducing quicker, their generation times are much shorter than humans, you can get more mutations or mistakes in the genome, yeah. and then you can use that information to figure out kind of how different populations are and how people move around. That's really cool. Yeah. Nice. So, but yeah, I mean, that was really, really cool stuff. Obviously, it's really cool to be in a new research field like that. Yeah, um, for sure. But... You know, my, you know, passion has always been biodiversity um, and being able to like actually use my skills to kind of help protect it. I think that's what gives me a lot of joy in my life as well. You know, just, you know, it's it's always, it's all good to be depressed about biodiversity, but, you know, unless you're doing something about it, you know, I think we need more people who really, you know, like take action. I I completely agree. And applying your skill set to conservation like yeah. uh, again our previous guest was is a mm. geneticist yeah, yeah. and she had a very similar statement than, mm. one, than the one you just made is how can you apply mm. you know you don't have to be a biologist or I mean a conservation biologist mm. no, to exactly. apply your field well this is the great thing about science nowadays right like you know obviously we have a lot more specialization right there's all these new fields popping up but ultimately to do great research you have to collaborate a lot yeah. one thing I learned in my PhD is you know you can't be an expert in everything you know you don't have hours in the day to become an expert in every topic you have to work with people and build relationships and rely on other people's expertise and I think that's what really makes great research is it's interdisciplinary yeah. nature and the pace of knowledge generation is oh, breakneck yeah. you couldn't possibly even be to be up to date in your own field oh yeah enough. I struggle I struggle with that to be honest like spending time to just think oh well these new methods that are coming out to yeah. analyze the data so yeah it's it really requires a, a lot of teamwork, which is great, right? Because you get to meet people with different backgrounds, different expertise, and figure out how you can kind of mesh it all together to yeah. create outcomes. And I mean, it's the concept of diversity, you know, mm. having a different <laughs> perspective on something adds something to the whole. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Exactly. Should we talk about actually transmission of microbes? Because yeah. that relates a lot, I think, in terms of the evolutionary context. Go for it. Um, yeah. So given that, you know, animals have evolved in a microbial world uh, and that there's you know, some strong associations between microbes and their hosts. The, the question is like, well, how do, micro, uh, how do the hosts ensure that their microbes get passed on to the next generation of offspring? They yeah, that's a great question. Them, right? that's, that, that's really important. Like, without that information, it's kind of like, well, this could just be an idea. 
But it turns out that evolution has found ways of doing this. So there's been a lot of work in humans done on the milk, our mother's milk. Yeah. So there's this thing called, yeah, colostrum is this really kind of rich, proteinaceous, you know, uh, secretion, uh, the kind of first milk, which is really rich. But also just like the, the, the milk sugars. So mm-hmm. these things called human milk oligosaccharides, and these are like short kind of sugars, uh, which can't actually be broken down by the infant themselves, right? The infant doesn't have the necessary enzymes for this. But it turns out that microbes do. And actually, it's quite specific, some of these associations. So certain strains of microbes can actually access some of these. So this could be a, a way of the, the host of saying, okay, these microbes are important. I need to keep them in my them. infant, right? Yeah. So that's one way of transmission. And there's still a lot we don't understand about the transmission, that kind of mother infant transmission mm-hmm. like is there are there microbes in the milk there's some evidence to suggest that's the case as well how the microbes get to the milk is another question well yeah that's wild it's wild right yeah how that happened i mean there's still that still needs to be investigated more but that's definitely could that be possible biologically well i mean i guess theoretically right if you somehow transport microbes to the uh, milk production facilities and then put them in yeah wow. i mean people have found microbes in the milk but it's a very hard sample type to analyze right yeah so I think it's really compelling. I know that there's some evidence to show that children that are born vaginally versus through cesarean section have totally different compositions. Of yeah, that was, been, that was a really big um, number of studies actually showing that, which is really interesting. And it's actually got some people to think, well, okay, if you have a C-section, should you try and inoculate the young with vaginal microbes? And there's actually a technique that was published that was saying that you could do this. Um, no, now, whether you know if that's going to be routine medical practice, we still need more evidence to say mm. that's the case. I can't recommend that. <laughs> I'm going on the record here saying that don't do that. Like, you know, be more considerate. But some people have been doing it. So essentially swabbing, getting a gauze and, and yeah. taking a vaginal sample and swabbing the infant with it, wow. which is really interesting. Yeah, so these are these kind of like maternal ways of passing microbes down, right? We still need to understand a lot more, but there's definitely some mechanisms at play here. And there's also less, I guess, pretty ways of doing this, like, you may have heard of coprophagy, you know, like eating feces. Eating poop. Exactly, yeah. right? Like, there's a lot of microbes, important gut microbes in poop. Passing them on, one of the easiest ways is to eat poop. Yeah. Um, and so a really cool example for this actually is koalas, uh, koalas in Australia. Um, so the mother will feed, because their diet, I guess I'll put a background about koalas, right? They eat eucalyptus, which is a really toxic diet, right? It has a lot of tannins and, and secondary metabolites that are really hard to process. So they rely on these, these microbes to break it down. And the mother doesn't leave to chance. Um, she feeds the joey pap, which is this kind of fecal-like secretion, hmm. which contains these microbes that pass on to the joey to the next generation. So this pap is like fundamentally different than regular feces. Yeah, it's fundamentally different. I, I don't know the exact details of how different it is, but it is very different to feces. And I think it's only produced for a few, uh, for a period of time uh, when the joey's ready to be to get off the milk. And so stuff. it's kind of like colostrum in a way, except instead of being a, a what is the difference between a probiotic, a prebiotic? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so I guess the probiotic, I think, is the microbe themselves. But what people have realized is that if you just give someone probiotics, like if the conditions aren't right in their gut of that person, for example, that microbe's not going to take root. And it's also really hard as well if, if there's other microbes present, right? If we have a really diverse ecosystem mm-hmm. and you try to just put one microbe in there, chances are the other microbes will be like, no, you're getting out of here. You know, you don't belong here and kick them out. So colostrum might be a prebiotic. Is that... Am I understanding that right? I don't know. I think I'm not sure about colostrum. I'm not a reproductive biologist. Or how different it is? I, my understanding is that it's more rich in fats and protein. It might right. be more important for that early stage. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I'm sure people have looked at the microbial component of that. But it probably has some role in establishing yeah, the gut microbiome of the infant. Yeah, could yeah. be. 
Uh, and then so the prebiotic, as, as you mentioned, um, that's kind of a substrate which that micro, particular microbe likes. So yeah. by putting both of them together, you can kind of better um, ensure this colonization. Cool. Yeah. I tell you what, when I started this podcast, I did not expect to spend so much time talking about shit. Oh, you know, shit is a trendy topic, you know? Apparently. That, that poo emoji is pretty awesome as well. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta use that. Cool. Well, I reckon that's a pretty good spot to leave it. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. If there's uh, people would like to reach you or find out more about your research, how can they get around that? Yeah, so um, if you're keen to know more, just um, obviously you can find me on Google, Raphael Eisenhofer. Um, my Twitter handle is R underscore Eisenhofer. If you want to get in touch, please do. Happy to always talk about things. Cool. Dr. Raphael, thank you very much. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you all for listening to today's podcast. This podcast was hosted by me, Bradley Bianco, and produced with my dedicated team, Christopher Jolly, Mile Tarrant, Adam Toombs, and music by Darcy Whitaker. If you'd like to support the production of this show, please consider joining the Biology Society as a member at www.biologysocietysa.com. If you're enjoying this content, why don't you check out our back catalogue? We release a new episode every fortnight.